The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The sermon text for this morning is 2 Samuel 13. I'd like to be turning there, 2 Samuel 13. I'll say on the front end before I read it, it's a hard text. There's just gross sexual sin. There's murder, anger, hostility, hatred. It's, it's one of those texts that, one, inevitably, our children look at and go, yeah, that one's my favorite. Um, but then there's also just the reality that it's one of those texts that we come to, that we read it, and it makes us kind of feel like, yeah, like this is, in, this is in the Bible. We don't want to read it. But we need 2 Samuel 13. This text is breathed out by God and is good for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. So the feelings as we read through it and maybe go, I don't know how I feel about this. God has given us this, this record of this event in the, during the time of David's kingship for our good and his glory. So let's read it together. 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber, chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not carry out this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young woman who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. For she was wearing a loose, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him the blessing, gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garment and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing, standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. There's a principle that is, is widely accepted by everyone, and, and that's rare these days <laughs> to have something that, to one degree or another, everyone somewhat agrees on. Whether you're in a room full of Christians like we are right now, or, or maybe you're in a room full of self-help gurus, or maybe you're on the stage at the Oscars, more or less, people are going to nod their heads in agreement over this one principle. Some will say, as many Christians will, they'll, they'll label that principle, you reap what you sow. I think most people would agree with that. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. It's in the Bible. Now, when you get to the broader world, what you find is in the secular world, a lot of people will label it things like, what goes around comes around. That's right. We're getting there. We're getting there. The principle of karma will even be used to describe such a reaping and sowing relationship. In the New Age philosophies, people will say, well, you kind of put your energy out there and whatever energy you put out there has a way of coming back to you somehow. Whatever that means. The, the point is, if you drill down to the basic principle, there is something in there that we all see and agree on. However, when Christians say, and the Bible says, you reap what you sow, it means something qualitatively different than what is meant by the principle of karma. 
or what goes around comes around, or this stuff about energy being put out there and coming back to you. When Christians say it, the intention behind it, or the meaning of it, is that God is the orchestrator of all things. That He is the principal actor behind the scenes, bringing things together. It's similar to when Christians say all things have a purpose, or for everything there is a reason. The world will say that too, but we mean it in two different ways. The way Christians mean it, much like this principle here, is that God is both judge and teacher. He is actively working behind the scenes, teaching His children through this principle of reaping and sowing. Now, I should also say, we don't live in a perfect world. The world we live in is not like what Job's friends think it is when they come to him. If you do evil, then you are going to have evil outcomes. And therefore, if we look at someone who is having what we think are evil outcomes, it must be because they've done something evil. That's not the way it works. God is the one that determines what one reaps based on what one sows, because He is both teacher and judge. So we see sometimes, and Scriptures bring this out a lot, in fact the Psalms do, Proverbs does, sometimes the wicked prosper. Now Proverbs will tell you, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty creeps up on you like a robber, right? But sometimes... A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and a rich uncle dies and leaves you $10 billion. That's rare, but sometimes that happens, right? So what I'm not saying is that we live in a perfect world and this works its way out perfectly. Sometimes the wicked don't get punished. And sometimes the righteous even will sin and there seems to be no consequences that follow, at least initially. But what we do believe and we do know is that God still teaches us that sin has consequences and He uses the principle of reaping and sowing to reiterate to His children that sin has consequences. Arthur Pink, theologian, said it this way, Though God forgives His people their sins, yet He frequently gives them plain proof of his holy abhorrence of the same, of sin, and causes them to taste something of the bitter fruits which they bring forth. So there are occasions where your sin reaps bitter fruit, and God's intention is to teach you through it that your sin is bitter, that sin itself is bitter, and he abhors it. So there's a natural relationship there where Christians, we believe that God is behind the scenes teaching and judging the world really at large, but also His children. And even when it comes to reaping and sowing, for those that seem to skate by without receiving the penalty that we think they deserve, that doesn't mean that they've skated by. There is ultimately a bench they will stand in front of where there is no skating. There is no getting by. It all comes to fruition right there. In this passage, and really through the end of the book, David is going to begin reaping all that he's sown. Now remember that this is all, everything that's happening in this passage is ultimately a result of David's sin with Bathsheba a couple of chapters ago. All of it is. Remember how the last chapter ends in chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against... There's God teaching again. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes. We haven't seen that yet. We will. Before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. 
For you did it in sec- you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. See, David, in the book of First and Second Samuel, David becomes one in a long list of people that are going to begin reaping what they've sown. God tells Eli, remember some chapters ago, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God tells Eli, whose sons are, it's called right there in the text, worthless men, whose sons are worthless men. He tells him in 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. There is God, again, paying each one according to his deeds. God is basically promising to deal with people this way throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Remember, Saul is the one that sows rejection of the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel 15. He sows rejection of the word of the Lord, and then he is, as a result of that, rejected from being king. There's an equal payment, essentially. Agag, who is the king of the Amalekites in that same chapter, 1 Samuel 15, He's the king of the Amalekites. It says he used his sword to make women childless, and so his sword makes his own mother childless, as Samuel the prophet takes the sword and kills him with it. So the passage in front of me is challenging on a number of fronts, as Jeremy has laid out already. It depicts this awful scene, terrible in every way. It's a sad event. So I have to be careful knowing that there are obviously children in here and we're going to be careful about going back through this in such a way that we don't have to rehearse every graphic detail that takes place. I think we all kind of understand what's taking place and we'll go through it as sensitive as we can. But it's sometimes difficult to take a tragedy like this and think, how is, first of all, why is this in the Bible? Why is this here and what is its purpose? And so really the task that I have is to demonstrate how this passage, yes, even this passage, points us ultimately to Christ. Every passage, when read in its proper and right context, when we understand the text correctly, it's going to point us to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's the task that I have in preaching. But the complication here in this passage is that the characters in the text are so intertwined to make just a singular point about them and go on like we normally do is sort of like taking one strand of spaghetti out of the bowl. It's connected to all the other strands. And so, to that end, it's going to be a little bit different this morning. We're going to get to the point of the text at the end, but we're going to do so by looking at the various characters in the story that's presented before us, seeing what they reap as a result of what they sow. And then in the end, there's going to be several, I think, discernible points that will help us understand this passage that's in front of us. So the passage opens up with the introduction of really three main people in this story, in addition to David. There's Absalom, there's Tamar, and there's Amnon. We haven't really heard much about any of these people up until this point. But Amnon is the oldest son of David. So as thinking would go, if we don't know how the future unfolds, Amnon would be first in line to the throne. Amnon is David's oldest child, and he's the oldest child by one of his wives, Ahinoam. And Absalom and Tamar are two of his other children by another wife, Makah. So two wives, three children, and two of them are blood through and through. The other one is a half-brother, the oldest, Amnon. Now, we haven't got to David yet, but as we've already seen, this whole drama opens up because of David's sin, of what he's already sown. Essentially, he's taken on a multitude of wives, and we've seen that kind of trail of breadcrumbs. His sin with Bathsheba was sort of an inevitable consequence of the kind of person that he was. He has literally sown his wild oats, as it were, and he has reaped 
this kind of family that we're looking at in front of us. So the story opens up with Amnon, and he is infatuated. He can't stop thinking about his half-sister, and he thinks he loves her. He's tormented to the point that he's making himself sick. But in verse 2, it's quite obvious that his torment is more than just these occasional thoughts that one might get. He says, but it, it, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything. The implication there is obviously the author's way of telling you that this is not just a passing thought to him, but he has contemplated all kinds of ways in which he might fulfill his fantasies. So naturally, there's a friend that comes along, actually a cousin, which is how all bad stories begin. I had this cousin, and he's here. His name is Jonadab, and he comes along with this idea. He asks him what is the matter with him, and, and Amnon is quick to tell him. He spills the beans before him, and Jonadab concocts this truly devious plot. Now, it's kind of unclear a little bit in the text, just to give Jonadab maybe that much slack, that he might not fully understand all the things that Amnon has in his head. Perhaps. It may seem that way that he's kind of shocked by the end of the passage that, uh, that Absalom has done what he did or that Amnon did what he did. But the point is, he spills his beans to Jonadab. Jonadab concocts this plan, and Amnon follows that plan to a T, and it works flawlessly to accomplish the sadistic goals that he really has. So in a story like this, when you get all these really, well, no other way to, to say it, but lurid details, what are they there to actually do? We, we sometimes get distracted in the details of the story and how grotesque they actually are, that it distracts us from seeing the real point that this story as get, is getting at. Tamar issues this warning to Amnon in the midst of this scheme that Amnon has concocted with his cousin. She gives him this warning, and it's there at the end of verse 12. If you'll look with me, she says, Do not do this outrageous thing. Literally, that is foolishness. Do not do this foolishness. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. She uses the same word again, fools in Israel. Now, she mentions, while she's in his evil clutches, that her father David, if he were to mention this to her, might work things out if he would just ask, which, given David's actions in the past, might be true. We don't know. But... If David did do that, it would be against the law, against the law of Moses for him to do that, to him to actually capitulate to what Amnon might ask him. It would be illegal for him to do that. But whether he would do it or not, I don't really know. I can't say. But in the story, it seems kind of like a last-ditch effort for Tamar to escape, which you can understand why she would want to do that, why she would say anything perhaps to just get out of there. So following this sin of Amnon, he turns to her in hatred. Now that he's accomplished his sin, surprise, surprise, it didn't fulfill what it promised. You've experienced this before. This is precisely what sin does. It tells you, it will give you all these forms of satisfaction. And yet then, when you reach out and take it, it withers in your hand and has no power to sustain. Not only that, for Amnon, it turns sour quickly. He turns to her in hatred as if she's the problem and dismisses her and then in utter horror locks the door behind her. Now, this is perhaps the only thing in the scene that could make this whole story worse. Because now, not only has he done this thing, but he has sent a likely young teenager out into the world, guaranteeing 
that she will never have a husband and that she will live her life in poverty and die in a pauper's grave as the daughter of a king. Imagine that for just a second. So knowing this, she tears her robes and she puts ashes on her head. Both of those are a sign of mourning, fasting. And she walks away weeping. But keeping in mind her warning to her brother that, she, that he will be a fool in Israel, we turn our attention to Absalom, who comes along at this point in the story, and he sees her weeping, and he sees obviously the ashes on her head, and he sees the torn garment, and maybe there was some things said, I don't know, but he begins putting together the pieces of all the things that have taken place. And so he takes his sister into his house, and she lives there for the rest of her days, basically treating her like his daughter, raising her in his house. See, the story here gets really complex and complicated and, and weird because here it's the point where Absalom reaches out and actually loves his sister the way you would want a, a male child of yours to love his sister and to treat his sister should some tragedy like this strike her. And he does this noble thing of bringing her into his house and taking care of her for the rest of his life. And so we end up, as the people reading the story, in a place where we're cheering for Absalom. I mean, maybe I'm the only one, I hope I'm not, that read 1 Samuel 13 this week and thought to myself, Come on, Absalom. Right? Even how this story ends, we're like, all right. You know, sort of like a Clint Eastwood movie. Like, come on, you know, do something here, Absalom. And we end up in this place that's very odd because we end up cheering for Absalom even though what he does is also terrible. And he's not a hero in the story, really, in the end of it. He is, he is also a villain. In fact, as we read this story, there's actually no good guys. There's no good guys. It's a tragedy top to bottom. There's no one really to cheer for, so you end up rooting for this kind of anti-hero in Absalom, which is a tragedy in and of itself. And I think that's on purpose. Because when you work through this chapter, you quickly realize, as you have only bad guys, that this story is supposed to be presented to you as one of the most twisted things you've ever heard. One of the most awful things you've ever heard. And you kind of get this feeling in the pit of your stomach, like you do when you read the book of Judges at the end, that you just kind of feel nauseous. It's sickening. Like you need to take a shower or something. It's awful. Nevertheless, we find out in verse 22 that Absalom hated Amnon. Even though he told his sister, look, forget it. Just put it behind you. It's over. Now, probably he means by that, if that was any other guy, he'd already be dead. But just let me take care of it, all right? And sure enough, he says, don't take this to heart. And he waits for two years without speaking bad or good. He waits for two years and he sits on all this stuff that's happened. He doesn't mention anything one way or another to Amnon. Amnon has no clue, maybe even that Absalom even knows about this, much less how he feels about this thing going on. He just pretends like it doesn't exist, like nothing is wrong. For two full years, he sits there in his anger and he stews on it. Finally, he gets this opportunity. It's that time of the year where the sheep are to be sheared. Now, traditionally, when there's a shear, sheep shearing festival, I'm going to get tongue-tied, I promise, like the last time I had to do this. <laughs> Anytime there is a sheep shearing festival, there is traditionally, along with the shearing of the sheep, a festival where the owner will throw all of his closest friends a party. And they'll feast, they'll eat, they'll drink, they'll be merry. It's a party, essentially, kind of like you would celebrate a harvest, right? But it's a harvest of sheep. 
as they are shorn. So Absalom invites David. He invites everybody in the whole family to come with him and to be there as we celebrate. But David declines the invitation. Likely David is getting very old. This is probably in at least the last decade, maybe even the last just few years of David's life. David rejects the invitation. He can't go for one reason or another. And so Absalom knows here's his chance. David is not going to be there. So he insists that Amnon come with him. Now, we know that it's not just Amnon. We see in verse 29 that it's actually all of the king's sons come out there with him, but he insists Amnon be a part of it. Now, it's been two years. Likely, David has probably, we know he knew about it, but likely David probably has maybe forgotten or put it away. It's not on the forefront of his mind for one reason or another, but it's very clearly on the forefront of Absalom's mind. And so he wants Amnon to join him. So the instructions... Absalom gives to his servants when they all get out there is very clear in verse 28. He says, wait until his heart is merry with wine and kill him. And of course, that's exactly what they do. Now, this is where the story takes a turn and there's a rich irony that is brought to the forefront. And if you're not reading 1st and 2nd Samuel all in one sitting, you'll totally miss it, I would assume. But it actually gets to the real point of the passage. We've actually seen something like this before. We've seen a story like this unfold in a very, very similar way in the past. And right now, you may be combing through the annals of First and Second Samuel as you've thought about them, going, where did this story happen before? And the answer is back in First Samuel 25, where there was a man by the name of Nabal, whose name means fool. Nabal was shearing his sheep, and he was also holding a festival, a celebration with all of his servants for the shearing of his sheep. In that story, you'll remember, David was on the run from Saul. He was trying to escape. He didn't want to die. And he and his men were hungry, and they saw that Nabal was having a sheep shearing festival, and they said, hey, one plus one equals two. That means I should be able to eat from Nabal. They protected his men as they, were, as they were shepherding the sheep. Now that the sheep are ready to be shorn, he goes to the sheep shearing festival and sends his servants in to ask Nabal if he can have some provisions. And Nabal rejects his men. And not only that, he actually scorns David in the process. Who is the son of Jesse? I don't know this guy as if he didn't have the right to ask for food. So Nabal rejects these men as they've come to him to ask him for food. So when David receives his servants back and they say, he, he told us no, he told us go away. David grabs his men together and says, all right guys, we're going to go kill this fool right now. So they all get together, they ride out to see Nabal, and in the process of going out there, David and his men are intercepted by a woman by the name of Abigail. Abigail is Nabal's wife. She intercepts David and his men, and she explains to David, My husband is a fool. His name is Nabal. It means fool. Why do you name your kid fool? I, I don't know. Maybe it was a nickname he got. I have no idea. But for one reason or another, his name was Fool. Abigail intercepts David and says, Look, he is a fool, and he does what fools do. And she actually gives to David and his men all kinds of provisions from presumably Nabal's supply. And so the text actually says to her, says to us, when David responds to her, all the way back in 1 Samuel 25, 32 to 34. It says this, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. You hear that? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to me this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day, because of the Lord sending her, kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. 
For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. You, you understand what David is saying there. He's telling her very clearly, it was God who intervened in this story. God stepped in and he stopped me from killing Nabal. That would have, I'm seeing now very clearly, that would have been blood guilt on my own hands. I would have been accomplishing salvation by my own hand. But God stepped into this situation, He intervened, and He stopped me from doing that. And so what happens then later on in the story is that Nabal becomes merry with wine, and he has a heart attack, and he drops dead. God takes care of the situation. See, in our story though, Amnon is warned by his own sister, Tamar, before this tragedy takes place, that he will in the end reap what he is sowing in this sin. She literally, literally says, do not do this Nabalish thing, that, or you would be as one of the Nabals in Israel. Which clues us in to the time when this story happened before. Sure enough, like Nabal... Absalom's men waited until Amnon's heart was likewise merry with wine from the drinking at another sheep shearing festival, and he died like Nabal, fulfilling the prophecy of his sister. Now you might be thinking, how crazy is that? I mean, what are the odds of something like that transpiring in such an ironic way? But what we've been saying, what I've been saying since the beginning, is that God is the one that is judge and teacher. God rules history, and the biblical author believes that too. God is judge of all mankind, and He's also the teacher. He is actively teaching His children through this principle of reaping and sowing. And we're watching it play out in a, what is effectively a parable of Amnon. His life, anyway, is. So the author is drawing your eye to the parallels between Amnon and Nabal, the other fool we've seen in the passage. But you'll also notice that this story has some significant differences. And that's the point. When the author draws your mind back to a parallel of something that's happened before, immediately you start pointing out, but wait, what are the differences in this story? Now, the main difference, of course, in the first one, is that God intervenes and prevents David from incurring this blood guiltiness and accomplishing salvation from his own hand. David even says that to Abigail. God has intervened and he's stopped this thing from happening. Then what does that say about the second one? God does not intervene. Absalom now plays the role of the avenger, and God doesn't stop him. Why? Well, perhaps there's a lot of reasons. But I think we can identify at least a few. One is that Amnon was about to reap what he has sown. Amnon is about to be ushered into the throes of justice. This has been two years in the making, which I'm sure for Tamar felt like forever. I'm sure for Absalom it felt like forever. But Amnon is about to be given justice. And I don't just mean killing him at the sheep shearing festival. I mean standing before the throne of God kind of justice. So he's going to die like a fool, like it was prophesied that he would. Second... I think another reason for this, David has to also reap what he's sown. It was told to him at the very beginning. Nathan told him that the sword would not depart from your house. And so God does not intervene in this process, and the sword enters into David's house with stunning speed. Third, I think we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that Solomon was told in the last chapter that he's going to be heir, but you understand that he is down the list of the sons of David. And so some of these sons have to be eliminated in one way or another. 
so that Solomon can fulfill his duty of being heir. Absalom, of course, has fled, and he will temporarily have the advantage over David, but he will also eventually be repaid for his sins. We will see him reap what he sows. So as these people in human history begin to interact with one another, God is simultaneously, I want you to see this, taking all of their actions and weaving their stories together, which includes tragic circumstances, first of all. He is doing that. He is actively bringing these things together. How will the sword enter David's house? Well, through more sin, unfortunately. See, God is going to draw a straight line, but the way He draws straight lines is with crooked pencils. Because it turns out, that's all He's got, is crooked pencils. So He will use the events of human history and weave them together, first of all. Second, He is ensuring that the wicked will receive due penalty for their sin, and He's telling us that in the text. Even if not everybody receives payment for their sin in the here and now, like we said earlier, some of the wicked people continue to prosper, they will ultimately receive payment for their sin, and we trust that, and God is reiterating to us, He has not lost track. But third, He is teaching His children what impact their sin has on the lives of them and the people around them. So in other words, Amnon's sin is not just between him and his sister. Amnon's sin is eventually felt by the entire family. But ultimately, it's God who also sees. Which brings us to David. David is the progenitor. He's the one that all of this started with. The one that these whole set of circumstances transpired from. David has had, as we've seen in the past, many parallels to Adam in the garden. He was entrusted with God's kingdom, like Adam. He was given the responsibility of stewarding God's righteousness, like Adam was. David was, in some respects, a new kind of Adam. And we've seen that over the last few weeks through this story. But now, Adam has fallen. He has, as we saw in the last chapter, he saw and he took. He saw Bathsheba and he took, just like Eve saw and she took in the Garden of Eden. It's a repeat of that same story. And now what happens as a result of the fall? David's sons start killing each other, which is exactly what we see happen in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. David is complicit, though, Not just in that sin, he's complicit in more sin in this text. Look at verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. Well, I'm glad he was angry. But surely I'm not the only one that reads that and goes, that's it? He's just, that's it? He's just angry? Tell me, fathers... What would you do? Would you just be angry? That's it? I don't think so. What is David's sin here? See, Amnon should have at the very least, at the very least, according to the law, paid restitution to ensure that Tamar would never suffer again. That was legally required at the, at the bare minimum. But David didn't even have the spine to enforce that. You get that? That, What weakness. He was just angry. Further, Absalom's vengeance would have been satisfied had he felt like there was some real justice coming from his dad. Don't you think? If David had stood up to Amnon and had given him the penalty that he deserved for his actions, surely Absalom 
would have felt like justice was in hand and not tried to take action on his own. Nor would he have felt like he needed to try to usurp the throne like we will see him do in subsequent chapters. But David is going to reap again what he has just sown in his inactivity. But after Absalom flees, it says in verse 38 and 39, look with me. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. There's some debate about how verse 39 should be translated exactly the, the, the way the ESV reads. It sounds like David loved Absalom and had longed, since Absalom left, had longed to go out to him, but didn't know quite how to reach out. You know, there's awkward, awkwardness between them, something like that. And, and maybe that is the case, but another way of translating the same verse makes it sound just a little bit different in that after Absalom committed this sin, David had contemplated going after him with the military, but didn't because it was his son. And after two years had subsided, he had kind of, or a few years had subsided, he put things away. And after Absalom has gone for so long, he kind of let his animosity toward uh, Absalom wane a little bit. But either way you look at this, David is inactive yet again. Absalom, his son, has reached out, taken matters into his own hand, and murdered his brother. Absalom also deserves to have a penalty. And what does David actually do about it? Nothing. He just sits on it. There are several things that I think come to the surface in this passage that we have to pay very close attention to. The first is that friendship with temptation leads to sin's reign in your life. Friendship with temptation leads to sin's reign in your life. The one thing we see playing out over and over and over again in this passage with Amnon and with Absalom is they make friends with temptation. We see it in both cases. Amnon is sitting in his house and he's just contemplating and he's just thinking and he's sick, making himself sick over it and he's telling other people what his problems are and he's dwelling on this obviously for quite a long period of time. And what does that friendship with temptation actually get him? It gets him sin's reign in his life where he must take matters into his own hand. Same way with Absalom, who sits on his anger for two years, and what does his anger actually in the end produce? It produces murder. Because it turns out that's all that's dwelling on temptation and continuing to find yourself in the place of temptation, it's all that it actually ends up doing, is eating you alive. That's why the Bible reiterates to us over and again, flee, run. Don't be in the presence of temptation. But we see the same thing with Cain, don't we? All the way back in Genesis chapter 4, doesn't God come to Cain as Cain is seething with anger over his brother Abel? Doesn't God come to Cain and ask him, what's wrong with you? Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Literally, its desire is for you. It wants to have you. But you must rule over it. Run, it says. Because friendship with temptation leads to sin's reign in your life. But second, I think we can also say, Passivity with sin leads to more sin. Passivity with sin leads to more sin. Isn't this what happens with David? And we saw in the previous chapters, David repents of the sin that he's committed with Bathsheba. But now there's no evidence, it seems, in David's life that though he has confessed sin, that he is actively trying to run from unrighteousness. But instead, he sees sin happening around him, and rather than punish his children or have the backbone, the spine, to stand up to them, even as an old man, he caves, 
folds like a cheap suitcase and doesn't do anything. He's passive with sin, and what in the end results from his passivity? More sin. Chaos, in fact. Isn't this what happens in organizations or in churches when leaders fail morally? They not only continue to find themselves in in and around temptation, but then when they engage with sin, there's passivity in their response. They're caught with things on their phone, and rather than give up the smartphone and go to a dumb phone or go to no phone at all, they keep that smartphone around and just put up filters, which they end up taking down left and right. Eventually. Or they keep finding themselves around the same friends over and over and over again. And they keep going back to the same well, thinking this time it will be different because you know what? I've been convicted now. No. Friendship with temptation leads to sin's reign in your life, and passivity with sin leads to more sin. The imperative is clear run, flee. But the sin that David has sown and is continuing to sow is reaping for him a harvest of chaos. It is a kingdom that has spun out of hand completely. But what will it produce? Well, it's going to be a long history of kings that fall one right after another, kings, kingdoms that divide, ki- uh, whole kingdoms that are taken off into captivity by invading kingdoms. There's going to be a long period of exile out in the end. And what is all of this sin of David eventually going to produce? One singular heir. And that heir will be Jesus. But you understand, here's what happens. We have this thinking in our mind that says, well, we reap what we sow until Jesus comes, then Jesus comes in, and no more. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. So no more do I have to reap what I sow. And nothing could be further from the truth. The purpose of Jesus coming is to reiterate the truth of reaping what you sow. The difference is, when Jesus comes in, God flips reaping and sowing on its head. And now, Jesus reaps what you've sown. And you reap what He's sown. See, the purpose is reiterated, but flipped upside down. So what we can say is, not only there is no more condemnation, but I am saved by grace That though I was dead in my trespasses and sins, God made me alive together with Him. That it was not of my own doing. It was a gift of God. Not of my works, because I can't boast. This, in salvation, is not something I've sown. This is something I reaped in spite of what I've sown. So what then now in the gospel actually becomes of reaping and sowing? Now, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, God uses the reaping and sowing principles to grow your distaste for sin. He still gives you consequences in the here and now, like any loving father would give to his children. He still lets you feel what those consequences actually are. Why? So that you'll grow to hate it. So that you'll want to flee. That's His purpose. For those that place their trust in Christ, this is what He has done now. But but what about those who don't, who reject Christ? See, the principle of reaping and sowing is still very much foundational to how God operates. But for those who are outside of Christ... It works the same way that it always has. And they'll stand before the judgment seat of God whether they ever pay for their sins now or not. Stand before the judgment seat of God and there they reap all that they've sown. They have nothing else to reap. They have no other actions to reap. So what does that then mean for us? Well, let me say two things. 
to the Tamars who are amongst. That may be men or women who have incurred untold levels of abuse in their past. Now we, I, people sitting next to you, may not know who you are. And we don't have to know. We may not know who you are. But in all likelihood, you have not received real justice. And I can almost guarantee you that as you sit there, you probably are thinking to yourself, I have not received real justice. And that probably is very, very painful. But, but I want you to remember something. Justice delayed is not justice forgotten. Justice delayed is not justice forgotten. We, we look at the world and we see all kinds of abuse. It's very, very hard for us to wrap our minds around. And we wrestle with those questions all the time. God is loving and he's good and he's just. So, so what gives? Where, where is where is the justice here? And it, and it feels very much unjust, unjust, like injustice. And I'm right there with you, it does. It feels very much like that. But remember what the promise is in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, when you feel the force of that, and you know that justice is coming, they've already been brought before the grand jury, and the grand jury has said, yes, enough evidence to try. They will stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and you will receive justice. There's no question about it. Trust. Trust. That's what the gospel actually brings to us as well. In addition to forgiveness is a certainty that God does care about sin and he keeps track of every single one. Second, I think there's a message to us generally that we should consider what we will reap in the future for the things that we are currently sowing. What are the things that you're currently putting in the ground and sowing? Christian, sometimes you will reap bitter fruit that your sin produces. But the, the result of that is in the end, because of what God is doing, because He plays the role of teacher, because He plays the role of judge, but because He is instructing you, it will give you an appetite for the righteous fruit of God's kingdom. But to the unbelieving, the bitter fruit that you may in this life get a taste of that is a result of your own sin just know that it is a foretaste of what is to come. But while there is time, repent of your sin and trust in Christ and receive instead the fruit of His righteousness on your behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would give us help. No doubt, as we think of all the things that we could reap based on what we've sown, the list is endless. I don't want to reap all that I have sown, not now and not much less in eternity. We would be lost, desperate, hopeless if in eternity, in judgment, we had to reap all that we've sown. We are grateful for what Christ has done on our behalf. But we pray that you would give us of your Spirit's own help to trust in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. That we might truly hope in the resurrection. That we might truly have hope in judgment. 
we pray. Allow it to fuel our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.